Our scripture reading this morning is going to be read by Mr. Ryan Decker and Reese Koning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from John 10, 1 through 10, where Jesus continues to address the Pharisees. This passage can be found on page 1,666 in your pew Bibles. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> over time, authors... Uh, from the likes of J.R.R. Tolkien to Frederick Buechner, have compared the gospel to a fairy tale. We all love a good fairy tale, they say. And all of us long for a world that is supernatural. A world where death is cheated, love is unending. A world where heroic self-sacrifice exists where victory is snatched out of the hands of death and goodness wins in the end. That's the stuff of, of fairy tales. Goodness wins in the end. That's also the stuff of the gospel, if you think about it. I mean, Beekner writes, the first act of the gospel is a story of man's tragedy. Something has gone drastically wrong and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. But the next act, God's answer to man's tragedy, is divine comedy. The tragic is the inevitable, the comic is the unforeseeable. How can Donald Duck foresee that after being run over by a steamroller, he will pick himself up on the other side? As flat as a pancake, but alive and squawking. This one goes back a ways. How can Charlie Chaplin in his baggy pants and derby hat foresee that though he has stood up by the girl and clobbered over the head by the policeman and hitting the kisser with a custard pie, how could he know that he will emerge dapper and gallant at the end, twirling his invincible cane and twitching his invincible mustache? The Gospel. It's the news that in spite of ourselves, we are loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, 
bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. That's the gospel. And that's fairy tale. Tragedy, comedy, leading to life happily ever after. How many times have you, have you heard that line? <clears throat> and they lived happily ever after. Cinderella and the prince, the beauty and the beast, the princess and the frog, they all lived happily ever after. And that's actually the problem that I have with fairy tales. Not that they end happily, but that they end just when things are getting good. I mean, everyone lives happily ever after, but my question is always how? How did they live happily ever after? What did that look like? I mean, how did Cinderella and the prince keep their relationship fresh and alive? I mean, did they go out dancing every Friday night? Did they have season tickets to Lambo? They must have had a very clear division of labor within their marriage, wouldn't you say? And if so, what was it? What did that look like? What can the rest of us learn from? Why didn't they share it with us? Did Cinderella, for instance, always clean the bathroom? Or did the prince say, Ella, you know, you spent enough of your life with bleach cleaning toilets because of those horrible stepsisters of yours, and so from now on, the bathroom is my job. Is that what made their marriage happily ever after? You see what I'm getting at? We're always told that they lived happily ever after, but we're never told how they lived happily ever after. And if you ask me, that's a pretty important part of the story to leave out. But you know something? We leave it out of the gospel as well. All the time. Let's, let's get at our text for a moment. If you look at, or we're looking at, uh, at the I am statements in the Gospel of John, right? I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. There are all these very poetic kinds of statements. Uh, they're rich metaphors. They're the kinds of metaphors you put in stained glass and they look, they look really good. With one exception, perhaps. And that's the one that we're looking at this morning. I am the gate. I am the gate. You just want to ask, huh? A gate? I mean, Jesus, you had us, right? You stirred our imaginations. The bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, <clears throat> the gate? Just doesn't seem to fit. Jesus, <clears throat> it sounds so, so pragmatic, right? It sounds like you need paint or you need oil. It's not something you would put in a stained glass window. Can't we go back to the fairy tale? Friends, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that this isn't one of Jesus' more, <clears throat> more popular sayings. Okay, It's not the one that we memorize in school or in Sunday school. I am the gate. Part of the reason is because it's not flashy, but another part of the reason is because this text that we just read is very, very confusing. It doesn't seem to follow a straight line. 
I mean, if you had difficulty understanding it, don't, don't feel bad. In the first six verses of our text, Jesus refers to the gate, right? The gate of the sheep pen. But the focus is, is less on the gate itself, and it seems the focus is actually more on the people who enter through the gate or who find some way around the gate, some other way to get into the pen. Thieves and robbers were told, avoid the gate. The shepherd is the one who enters through the gate. And, and it's maybe not stated, but I think it seems fairly clear to us that, that Jesus throughout that first part of the text seems to be referring to himself as the shepherd. In fact, the whole passage would be far more clear if we could just jump from verse 6 right to verse 11, where Jesus just makes it obvious. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And in that case, everything would be satisfyingly clear. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes into the pen through the gate. But as we have it, things get really messy in between there, in verses 7 to 10. In verse 7, Jesus doesn't say that he's the shepherd who goes through the gate. He says, I am the gate. And then as if for emphasis, he says again in verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And so when you throw those verses in, you're left with this question, rather puzzling question, so Jesus, what is it? Are you the shepherd or are you the gate? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, uh, one way that people have avoided that question or answered that question is to do what, what many scholars have suggested, and that's to say that, you know, long ago, some scribe somewhere inadvertently took those verses 7 to 10 and he just put them in the wrong place. It was a mistake, and so if we want to fix this text, if we want it to make sense, we'll just delete those verses and, and forget that Jesus said anything about being a gate at all. But in the Orthodox Christian faith, we've never really liked that idea of cutting and pasting our way through the Bible. And so we're stuck wrestling with what's here. And as so often happens in a case like this, commentators not so long ago stumbled upon a possible answer. It seems that, that in the Middle East, not every sheep pen has a gate as we think of a gate. In fact, some sheep pens don't have a gate at all. They just have a, a gateway, okay? They have an opening where a gate should be or is supposed to be, but it's not really there. Some sheep pens just have a gateway, and what happens is all the sheep come in to the, to the pen, and then the shepherd himself actually lays down in the gateway. And when he lays in the gateway, the sheep aren't going to step over him to get out to the pasture. And no wolves are going to try to get in past the shepherd, at least not without him knowing it. And so the shepherd in that case actually is playing a dual role. He's a gate and he's a shepherd. Now, is that kind of a way to, 
to understand our text, to make sense of it, that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm both. I'm a shepherd who also serves as a gate. Well, it would be a nice answer and a nice solution to all of this if it weren't for verse 3. Because verse 3 mentions a watchman who opens the gate for the shepherd, which sure sounds a lot like he's opening a a wooden or a metal gate that first pops into our Western minds. And so, essentially, we're back to ground zero. Is Jesus a shepherd? Is Jesus a gate? Is he living flesh? Is he rusty metal? Why this mixing of metaphors? Why not more clarity? It seems like Uh, One verse that makes the most sense at all is verse 6, the verse that Reese read this morning, which basically says what he was telling them didn't make any sense to them. We understand. And yet I wonder, I wonder if the problem isn't so much with the text as we have it, as it is with ourselves as readers and listeners to the text. I wonder if the problem is more with with us as people who have grown up listening to fairy tales and listening that to the fact that everything just turns out well in the end and people live happily ever after. I mean, think back a moment to the fairy tale, right? You've got tragedy, Donald Duck gets flattened, and then you've got comedy. Even though he's flattened, he gets up to squawk anew. And then there's that rest. They lived happily ever after. Fairy tales come to this abrupt end, and the rest of the time is simply summed up in those three words, happily ever after, and no one asks the question, how? How did they live happily ever after? Now, if you've listened to fairy tales your whole life, how do you tend to hear the gospel? Well, listen again to verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. If you've listened to fairy tales your whole life, that's enough. For many of us, that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the whole story. You have tragedy, something that we need to be saved from, right? You have sin and death. And then you have comedy. You have a way out of sin and death, a gate, You have someone who bled for us. And you have happily ever after. Right? Life in the sheep pen. Jesus is our gate into the pen. He's our gate into heaven. And we live happily ever after. But now, let me ask you something. Is that really reading the text? Or is that reading Cinderella? Is that where the gospel leaves us? Is that where the gospel ends, at happily ever after? Friends, the gospel is about more than entering, isn't it? Isn't it about more than getting in? Is Jesus in this text merely a gateway into heaven, as we so often read it? And if so, 
if he's just a gateway into heaven, couldn't God have just set up a big wardrobe somewhere in the universe and said, find it and step into it and make your way to the back through the coats and all the stuff that's there. When you actually reach the back, you'll be in heaven and you'll live happily ever after. I mean, is that all Jesus is? Is he merely a wardrobe? If we were playing 20 questions this morning, would this gate, would he be animal, vegetable, or mineral? How would you answer that? I mean, why did God send a person and not a mineral? Not just a regular gate that we could enter into. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's the gospel. But is that the whole gospel? Is the gospel just about getting in? Let me share with you a little uh, story, a little embarrassing story. My, my basketball career started at Grant School in Sheboygan where they were hosting small fry basketball. Small fry basketball was essentially a clinic where you were supposed to learn all the fundamentals, right? The dribbling, the passing, how to shoot, all that stuff. I didn't want to go. I told my dad I had no interest in a clinic. <clears throat> no interest in learning how to play. I already knew that. And then he told me, well, at the end of each clinic day, we would play a game. So I was in. That's what I wanted. I wanted to play in the game. And so I endured the clinic for most of the day. I tolerated all that instruction so that I could finally play the game. And you can probably imagine what happened, right, when I finally got into the game. I mean, I dribbled around like a superstar all over the court. And I broke just about every rule to the game. I was called for traveling, I was called for double dribble, over and back, shooting at the wrong basket, you name it, I did it. You see, all that mattered to me was to get in the game, even though I had no clue, absolutely no clue what to do once I was in the game. Is that what the gospel is about? Is it about just getting in the game and that's where Jesus leaves us, says, all right, you know it all from here. Listen to those words in verse 9 again. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. But it doesn't end there. It says, he will come in and go out and find pasture. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Is Jesus the way to salvation? Yes, of course he is. Whoever enters through me will be saved. But what is that salvation like? What does it entail? He will come in and go out and find pasture. That salvation is, is all of that. He'll come in and go out. That sounds more like 
more than sheep just, you know, heading into a pen and, and living happily ever after in that sheep pen. I mean, what it sounds like is they go into the pen and they stay there for the night as a place for safety while the shepherd is tired and he's getting some rest. But then the next morning they go out of the pen again and they find rich pasture in which they live their lives. A sheep, if you think about it, can't live her whole life in a sheep pen, can she? I mean, if she stays locked up in a pen her whole life, she'll die. She needs food, she needs water, she needs grass and plenty of it. Life for a sheep consists of moving in and out. And so, and so she needs a gate that really opens both ways. A gate that opens in to the pen and a gate that opens out to the pasture. And Jesus says that when we come to him, what we find is both of those things. It doesn't end at the going in. When you come to Jesus, he says you find life. You find life to the full. We always call this eternal life, everlasting life. David Carson talks about this. He says what Jesus is talking about here is not everlasting life in the sense of more time to fill, but it's life at its scarcely imagined best. It's the best life to be lived. That's what Jesus leads us to. The best life to be lived. Friends, have you let Jesus open the door to that kind of life for you? Have you let Jesus open the door out? The door into the pasture where there is rich life, good life. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Rick, uh, Rick Britton was up here preaching. He mentioned a fellow who approached him in a parking lot with the question, do you know what would happen if you were to die tonight? And that question comes from an old evangelism method that we were taught way back in the, in the 70s. It was called evangelism explosion. And that was always the main question. You were always working up to that question. What if you were to die tonight? And it's a good question, but it's all about getting in, isn't it? And there's kind of an assumption that once you get in, that's it. Why were we never taught a follow-up question? Or why were we never taught this question in the first place? What if you were to wake up tomorrow morning alive and well? What would you do? Why don't we ask that question? Could it be because our gospel is a little too small? That we only think of Jesus as a gate into the pen and not a gate into life? A gate into real life, to joy and peace and purpose and depth of relationship and, and everything you really need to live. That Jesus is something to wake up for. 
Happily ever after doesn't just happen. It has to be taught. And Jesus, friends, is the only one who can teach us. And so if you're merely looking at him for a way into heaven, you're missing so much. So much that Jesus has to teach us. Yes, we all like sheep have gone astray. And so he came like a lamb and was led to the slaughter in our place. But he also came as a shepherd to lead us. To lead us to rich pasture to teach us how to live this life, this very life. The one that you will wake up to tomorrow morning. What does this world really need from Christians? Maybe think of it this way. What does the world really need from us? Does it need more than a question about what happens when you die? Maybe this world needs some answers about how to live. Maybe that would interest our neighbors. You know, advertisers, I, I marvel at advertisers. They are really smart people. What does every ad on TV show you? It shows you some version of the good life, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever seen someone sad on a commercial? There's no sad people on commercials. They're all living it up. They're all happy. They're all rejoicing. They're all jumping up and down or dancing and smiling. How do people get that happy? Well, the ads will tell you, right? You drink a Pepsi, and that's, that's the life that you will live. Or you switch to Verizon, or you order one more thing from Amazon, and life is going to be great happily ever after. Friends, those are the thieves and the robbers that Jesus is talking about. Do those things really ever lead to true life? No way. Right? You always need one more thing. Does Jesus lead to true life? Does he? If he does, because I think that's our standard answer, then we have to ask ourselves some hard questions, don't we? Like, why is it that just about every study shows that Christians are really not all that different from the general population. Our divorce rates are similar. Our debt load is similar. Our porn use is similar. Our generosity is similar. We're just as angry as the rest of our neighbors. And we could go on and on and on and on. Why is it that if Jesus says, I am the way to true life, the gate to true life, full life, why is it that we don't seem very different? Could one answer at least, just one answer, because I'm sure there are many, but could one answer be that we possibly End the gospel halfway through verse 9. 
that we read up to this point. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved, and then we go home. And we don't read that he will come in and go out and find pasture. And I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Could it be that we make the gospel all about getting in, getting into heaven and And then after that, we look to every thief and every robber that comes along to teach us how to live happily ever after. Friends, Jesus is not just the doorway into heaven. He is the doorway into life. He doesn't just get you into the game, right? He teaches you what to do once you're in the game so that you're not running around like some clueless 10-year-old. He teaches you the rules to the game so that you can have fun and and not get called for double dribbling every time you touch the ball. That's no fun. That's not real life. He teaches you the blueprint for, for living happily ever after. Jesus really does teach you how to divvy up the chores, how to be the person your friends can trust, a person of integrity. How to live in confidence, without fear. There's so many things that we need to be taught about living. Happily ever after doesn't just happen. It only happens in Jesus. It happens when Jesus is is the gate in and the gate out. And we live in him and we cling to him and we follow him wherever he goes and we listen to everything he says. Happily ever after doesn't start when you die. It starts right now when you accept Jesus as your gate, as your Savior and as your Lord. That's when life begins. That's when joy begins and peace. That's when true relationships begin. That's when money takes on a real purpose. That's when time becomes really valuable because now I've got something to do with it. That's when every word takes on meaning and you don't want to waste them. You want to steward them wisely. Because they have impact, they have meaning. I have come that they may have life. Have it to the full. Don't short our shepherd. Jesus is the gate. But he's the gate to fullness of life. Fullness of life. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the gate to the fullness of life and you invite us to step into that life with you. Lord, forgive us when we truncate the gospel. 
Forgive us when all we think about is I've got my ticket to heaven and now I'm good. And then we follow every other thief and robber to try to find some kind of life worth living. Forgive us for not looking to you for every good thing. For not coming to you to experience the fullness of life. Life that is true life. Life that that is so good and so joyful it carries us through the difficulties that come our way in life. We understand, Lord, that our lives go up and down and trouble and hardship will come our way. But Lord, you have told us that even in all of that trouble and hardship and tribulation, life with you is, is still fullness of life. It's good life. It's the life. Lord, we look at our persecuted brothers and sisters in the church around the world and they fear for their lives every day and yet there is a a joy that is within them that we all covet and long for. And Lord, it's a life that you have offered all of us. A life of coming in and going out finding pasture. Lord, be our gate, our gate to the fullness of life. This is our prayer in in your name. Amen.